This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. While there have been meaningful improvements in healthcare delivery over the last decade, they have not catalyzed the transformation necessary to advance health value and equity. The promulgation of health policy and implementation of new alternative payment models have created a landscape for experimentation and value-based care, yet this seismic shift needed to facilitate long-term and sustainable improvements has yet to occur. The key enabler for the future of our industry is workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of high-value, high-quality care that delivers equitable outcomes for all. This week on the Race to Value podcast, you're going to hear from a distinguished panel of industry experts on the importance of workforce development and value transformation. Here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value, we believe that healthcare transformation begins with the competency of the team. And workforce development is our top priority in the value-based care movement. Workforce development will drive success in value-based care by ensuring industry capability, and it will help underserved communities thrive through population health interventions that improve societal outcomes and reduce inequities. Daniel and I appreciate you tuning in to this week's podcast as you listen to this panel discussion that I moderated with Dr. Jim Walton, Christina Severin, Joy Dahl, and Dr. Richard Walker, think about how the scale and impact of workforce skill and knowledge is either a force multiplier or an impedance for change. If you want to learn more about affordable educational pathways for reskilling and upskilling and preparing for risk-based payment after hearing this podcast, please feel free to reach out to the Institute for Advancing Health Value, your partner in developing a competent workforce to win this race to value. We have four amazing panelists uh, for you today. We have Dr. Richard Walker, CEO and founder of TVP Care, a medical practice focused on team-based care that delivers a new 21st century standard for primary care at home. And he's the author of Black Health Matters, which provides a comprehensive strategy for improving the health of millions within the black community. We also have Christina Severin, President and CEO of Community Care Cooperative, a federally qualified health center ACO based in Boston. This is an innovative model for accountable care that leverages the proven best practices of ACOs throughout the country and is the largest FQHC-based ACO in the country that takes two-sided risk in managing Medicaid populations. We also have Dr. Joy Dahl, Vice President of Community and Academic Programs for Sync Health a company that provides an interoperable population health data utility focused on outcomes. Joy is also the chief academic program officer for the Nebraska Healthcare Collaborative. And in that role, she facilitates translation of projects using Sync Health's data for improving population health, learner engagement, and supportive academic partnerships. And we also have Dr. Jim Walton. Uh, Jim is an experienced and innovative physician leader. He's been the chief executive officer for Genesis Physicians Group since 2013, provides executive leadership to more than 1,700 physicians and allied health members in North Texas. Uh, Dr. Walton has established an innovative ACO and works with commercial Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, and other populations. So I'm excited about this panel. We're going to be talking about how higher education can partner with healthcare organizations to support workforce development 
for the needs of the future. And we're going to cover reskilling and upskilling primarily around emerging value-based payment models and how health professions programs can work with industry to better address equity. So I thought we'd go ahead and get into the questions. I was thinking about this discussion and how do we care for our most vulnerable in society? I mean, we have to ensure health equity and reduce disparities in care among populations. And the research shows us that the American healthcare system is not immune to institutional racial discrimination. I mean, if you look at the African-American community, those patients tend to receive lower quality care, including treatments for cancer, HIV, prenatal care, diabetes. They receive uh, less access to preventative care. They're also less likely to receive treatment for cardiovascular disease. African-American men in particular have some of the worst outcomes in any major demographic group in the country. And health disparities also affect African-American women, leading to increased death rates from cancer, threefold risk of dying during pregnancy. We saw during the COVID-19 pandemic as well how the African-American population was disproportionately impacted with a much higher death rate. And I think during this pandemic, there's been an elevated level of national consciousness around addressing health equity. So I wanted to, you know, speak to this with our, you know, as we kick off our panel today, I'd love to hear from you all, if you could speak to your work within your organization and how you're addressing health inequities in the communities that you serve. I mean, how is your organization examining the health-related social needs of your patient population and then working to address those issues in an individualized, culturally relevant way? How about we start with Dr. Walker, if you want to go ahead and take the primary response. Yeah, and uh, thank you, uh, Eric, for inviting me to this uh, distinguished panel. I'm very excited uh, to be here. I've been thinking about it for the last last month, actually. And uh, to answer your questions uh, specifically, uh, our business model was a construct of the things that we felt were the obvious applications to the underserved. Uh, my uh, vision of uh, our company uh, really came from the challenges that my mother experienced with the uh, healthcare system. And uh, due to their lack of comprehensiveness and the lack of willingness and awareness to take care of underserved uh, populations, and when I say underserved populations, I'm not just talking about uh, African-American or Latino or Native American. Also, what we saw with the COVID-19 was the senior population, and they were also devastated. So our company, really, uh, what we've done is uh, we took the, a look at what was possible, and we re-engineered primary care. And what that means is primary care can no longer be uh, the single provider that has all the answers and brings him or herself into the practice of medicine and can do everything. Those days are gone. Reengineering for us is, do we understand the social determinants of health or the micro social determinants of health of every individual that we care for? And what can we do to increase the access? Well, in our business model, it was we increased the access by going to the patient, not waiting for the patient to come to us. Well, that's not new, that's not innovative, but what we do is we have high touch and high tech. A primary care provider go into the home, they're not just bringing a stethoscope and an otoscope, they're bringing 21st century technology, such as remote patient monitoring, chronic care management, telemedicine, telehealth, predictive analytics, and we wrap it under one umbrella so that there's one phone call and one company that handles the entire focus of that person for the rest of their life in the home. I love Dr. Walker's approach and meeting patients one patient at a time. Um, we're a health data organization, so we look at it and think about it a little differently and looking at equity through data democratization and making data available. Uh, really, patients don't even have access to their own data or their holistic data. And so clinicians are looking in EHRs and not seeing all the information on the patients. So 
we really think about it very broadly. So we tie together the health information exchange, social determinants of health, and, and our prescription drug monitoring program to really start to build that longitudinal health record. And we are working very closely on social determinants of health and what we've learned so much about building an ecosystem that really starts to think about a network that supports and protects people. And technology is a solution, but people really make the difference in that narrative. We know to get at this notion of equity that all the players, all the providers have got to play in this space. It can't be just one institution's responsibility, whether that's the FQHC or a hospital system or private practice or whatever. We know that the entire ecosystem has got to get engaged in this. And the premise that we're working with here in Dallas is this idea that the, the concept of equity in healthcare ha is a valuable business model for the future for private practicing physicians. The challenge though is, is that private practicing physicians are already on this kind of bubble, right? Of We call it burnout, or maybe better stated would be moral injury. And so one of the things that we're starting to see, and we, you know, we, we, we've, we've known this because of COVID's kind of pulled the cover back, right? Not only on, on the patients experiencing more morbidity and more mortality, certain types of people. But we also see the moral injury and the, and the burnout within the physician community. And it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at some, right? Is that if your workforce is burned out, it's not likely that your patient population is going to be rewarded. So we have to have this adjunctive uh, system come into existence that kind of, which is I think what we want to talk about today, that's going to come and help, if you will, and, and facilitate addressing social needs or social determinants of health. And so creating a business model, as Dr. Walker was talking about, and I liked, I liked the approach, right, is you think about it as a pro-business, because we know in the American story of healthcare, it better be something about business. And it's it better have some ROI attached to it while you're doing good, right? Otherwise, we're just tilting at windmills. The things that we've realized from a business standpoint is that there is a percent of the population that is more likely to respond favorably to social interventions to address their preventive or chronic care needs to avoid having to utilize the emergency room for fill in the blank, right? Uh, refills of their asthma inhalers or whatever. And so we have tried to harness um, AI and machine learning to take a more strategic approach at identifying folks who are most likely to respond to a social intervention as an adjunct to the primary care. I really appreciate what the co-panelists have said, Dr. Walker, Joy, Dr. Walton, all really, really great, interesting stuff. We are an organization that is a sort of scaling up of federally qualified health centers. And of course, federally qualified health centers sort of had a lot of assets going into the discussion around advancing health equity. So a longer history of team-based care, a longer history of using resources licensed and unlicensed as part of the care team and more likely to have behavioral health resources including access to behavioral health integration on site. And all of that still does not mean that there isn't a lot of work to do because there is a lot of work to do. So we've been focused on a few things. One of them is within our organization to set up a diversity, equity, and racial justice committee you know, that has an annual budget and has real autonomy. The chair of that committee with the chair people have real autonomy to set what the priorities will be for our organization, including how we should be relating to health centers and collaborating with health centers in setting target improvements for specific areas of health equity. There's a lot of discussion around sort of this dichotomy between wanting to move the ball forward on health equity, and then sometimes organizations saying, mm, we're just not sure if our data is reliable enough to be making decisions on starting point of where we need to go because we, are, we don't feel our data is reliable. 
we have made a decision to do both at once. So for example, we believe that the data we have on race, language, and ethnicity at the C3 level, we harvest that data out of the EHR, the electronic health record fields, where the member self-reports and the health center, usually a medical assistant or a PCP in the exam room documents in that field, either that individual's race, ethnicity, and language, or that that individual preferred to not disclose that information. So that information, we have some high integrity on that information at about a rate of 75%. One of our focuses is to look at that 25%, share that information with health centers and through training and workflows, try to squeeze that number down. Concurrent to that, we think 75% is a really good starting point. And so we're not waiting to look at various aspects of our work by how we are doing based on race, ethnicity, and language. For example, we look at whether we are equitably enrolling people into care management and care coordination programs. There's a reason why I brought up how we address health equity within the context of the workforce, because we have some major announcements being made by the federal government in terms of uh, including health equity in every stage of payment model development, including ideation, model design, uh, recruitment of new risk-bearing entities, implementation, evaluation. We recently heard in the CMS Innovation Center and their uh, strategy announcements that they're going to embed health equity in the future in all models. And there was a recently announced ACO REACH program, which really takes this a step forward. So knowing that, you know, in value-based care, you have to have a workforce that's truly empowered, working off of actionable insights with data. They're making connections to the community. They're practicing in a very uh, interdisciplinary, uh, team-based, collaborative way. But now there's this new emphasis on health equity. And I wanted to ask, how do we prepare our workforce for the future? And, and also, how do we build the population health infrastructure to improve care outcomes in low and modest income, racially diverse and rural populations, especially within this context of pay payment model redesign? Thanks, Eric. Yeah, well, I mean, to start with what you mentioned on the sort of the reincarnation of the direct contracting CMMI model into the ACO REACH program as a group of federally qualified health centers, we are, you know, obviously very excited about this program redesign. Uh, we think it makes a lot of sense that a budget or a benchmark be adjusted to represent the complexity of the population. So just, you know, big shout out to Director Fowler and all of the leaders at CMMI for swiftly working on that program and getting that application out. I think that there are, Eric, so many answers to that question and so many layers. And I know that my co-panelists will take up various angles. You know, one thing that I would say as a white person on this journey and as a white person who is the CEO of a company, on this journey is that for us getting started actually meant sort of as white people in an organization, as white leaders to do the work, to invest in really understanding sort of what is the system of white supremacy in this country? You know, what is the 400 year legacy of slavery to Jim Crow, to the uh, criminalization of black people, to mass incarceration? And how does that show up in everything that happens, including how our healthcare, the US healthcare system works? And so, really taking the time, because of course, everyone in an organization, right? An organization is all of the people who work there. And people in the organization are going to be at very, very starting points. And I think that if you don't sort of make the assumption that there are different people on different starting lines, then you risk moving forward and not having everybody with you. So I think that as an organization, it's really important to have the expertise. For us, we, we hired and contracted for the expertise in really understanding you know, what elements of our organizational culture have sort of shown up because of the legacy of white supremacy. How do we need to put in the effort to make organizational change over time, right? How do we need to examine ourselves? How do we need to examine our work so that we can sort of have the educated perspective 
to then begin to embark on the work? All the things that we're talking about, all the different models, all the different applications, all the science, all the technology, it all distills down to one word, trust. Do I trust you? You know, all the things that we are doing are great, but with the weight of 400 years on the shoulders of those who don't trust, everything that we're saying comes down to, yeah, but. I've heard all these things, of course, not at this level, but we've heard, we've seen, we know that there was science. We know that this was done and that was done. And you can r really reflect on what I'm saying. If you look at which population in the U.S. is the least likely to get the COVID vaccine, African-Americans. Why? Because they don't trust it. They are suspicious. And what that means is that everything that we're doing, and I'll just give you an example of what we're doing in our, our company. One of the things I, I did is I hired a good friend of mine who happens to be a NASA rocket engineer. And well before I had our company, we would talk about quality and the lack of quality in healthcare. And that came up because once I saw that they were about to launch a rocket and with four seconds to go, uh, with triple redundancy in the computer systems and three giant rockets, they shut the whole thing off. And I asked them, I said, how did you do that? Well, back to healthcare, what it means to me is the reason why I brought him on board is that I said, uh, Listen, here's what I need you to do. I need you to be able to look at what we're doing, look at the processes that we are implementing in being able to take these deliverables that we're calling value-based care and tell me, number one, do they work? Number two, do they really have an effect on the individual and what they expect of us and does it meet their level of trust? I, I have the privilege of teaching at one of the local universities in healthcare management. And we, we get to this conversation. I think Christina set it up very nicely. And it, if, you, if you look over the arc of history of the United States, and then you try to tell the story of the American healthcare system in parallel to this historical arc, you know, three or 400 years of medicine's history in the United States, you do see this intersection that starts to, you this collision course with the civil rights movement. And to some extent, one could argue that in 1965, there was this confluence of, 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 of vectors, right? And my thinking is that the onset of Medicaid and Medicare at a policy level from the, from the United States federal government was, was a point in time that we need our students to understand. So I'm trying to, to answer Eric's question, to upskill or reskill the population that's going to help us in the future, they've got to be grounded in this historical arc that Christina talked about. Now, interestingly, if you fast forward, you know, and I've been in the business for a while, that you fast forward to 2000 and the Institute of Medicine's Crossing the Quality Chasm calls out the health, the notion of safety problems, right? The, the, by the way, when you look at the safety problems inside the healthcare system, it really didn't matter what color or gender you were. If, if something was gonna go wrong, you know, with your admission to the hospital, it was kind of not necessarily biased to certain groups of people. And so that really got the majority cultures, the white power base, as you would say, Christina, motivated to say, hey, we need to get better on quality, right? Which is goes to the, the rocket ship concept that uh, Dr. Walker's bringing up. So, but equity in that whole uh, six aims that the IOM brought up, right? Equity was maybe not priority because safety was a much more uh, equal opportunity problem in, in 2000 or the early part of the century. 
it took us 22 years to get to where CMS now says, hey, I think we ought to make this a big deal. And we ought to be thinking about equity. So the question we have to get our students to try to understand is why in the world are we having this conversation now, 22 years after we talked, we first introduced this notion of, of inequity or disparities, along with safety problems and efficiency and patient satisfaction problems and things like that. So we know that this is kind of this kind of blended economic model where we're having a conversation, if you think about it, around value-based arrangements, capitation, and, and driving equitable outcomes, right? Access and outcomes. So there's this kind of unfinished civil rights movement that there's a conversation we're still having around the unfinished civil rights movement. My thinking on this relates to the idea of Dr. Walker start to bring this, tease this out a little bit, which is the health system has proven to the minority population that it's not trustworthy. But we, the health system, project onto the patient that, who, that they have a limited amount of trust. So the actor now is they're the ones who've got to change. Well, we really need to start to look internally and go, no, 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 it's not about the, the patient who has lack of trust that needs to change. It's really the idea that the system has to be more credible and more trustworthy. And so now the, the, the focus is just like we did with safety, just like we did with efficiency. We look at ourselves rather than the patient. And we say, and, and it's kind of like some examples here, you, you actually take the service to the patient, which is a novel idea, right? To increase credibility and trust uh, that addresses people's immediate felt needs so that they, they can address more longitudinal ideas around uh, health maintenance, things like that. So I'll tie this up to say, we're introducing students to the historic arc, number one. And number two is we're giving them real life experience in a value-based arrangement that's intentionally working with people who are experiencing disparities, using technology to identify people who are most likely to respond favorably as your first mover, so you can get some momentum economically and make, and make a, a, positive, a positive contribution. It's a huge subject, uh, Eric, around this workforce development, but that gives you a little bit of thinking about where my mind is. Hard to build on those excellent words. I really like what Christina talked about. We're all on a journey. I think we're joining professions, but we're not fully formed. And we need to be responsive to the times and prepare. You know, I think about how much healthcare has changed since I've joined it, right? And you can let that burn you out, or you can be like, I'm part of this and I'm going to figure out ways to try to be resilient and challenge status quo, have uncomfortable conversations. And we need to empower that. And the reality is there is a disconnect between the type of clinicians that are out there and our patients sometimes, and I used to always tell the students, you don't get to pick your patients. So my job is to prepare you for every type of patient that will come to you. And many of them are going to have a very different lived experience than you have. And one of the wonderful things about occupational therapy, which is my profession, is we really meet people where they're at. And it is about building trust I think one of the biggest challenges we've really faced is I found a lot of clinicians really want to practice in the values-based system. They want to collaborate with their team members. They want to be patient-oriented, but they're in the system that feels very crushing and they feel very disempowered to speak up and, and advocate. And so I see a lot of, especially younger people, they put their voice out and then over time, it's never listened to. They don't feel like they make any movement. And so one of the things that was always really powerful in the, and we supported the first clinic to advise based payments in Nebraska and, you know, how the team really helped build resiliency for the clinicians around each other, because we do have to take care of ourselves to be good for other people, but that we would also hold each other accountable to some of these tough conversations and make it safe to have them. Because I think in the busy day of, of that or, and it, it takes those of us, you know, I tell my team, we have 
diverse members. I'm like, if I ever say anything that's disempowering or I make mistakes. And a couple of weeks ago, one of the team members who's a lot younger than me corrected me on something. And I was like, this is a great moment because this is you trust and feel safe enough to tell me I made a mistake, right? But we don't always have that safety in our healthcare teams or in our organizations to call those things out. So if you are seeing, you know, bias or mistreatment, just like with error in the quality chasm, we made it safe to bring up health errors. We need to make it safe to talk about health inequity. And I don't have all the answers on how to do that, but I think that gets back to the trust that was talked about. Do we have trust in our teams and our organizations to say, hey, we're not going down a path that's good for this patient or for this population, and, and we need to be safe to have the conversation about how we could do better. That happens at the top with leadership and organizations, like Christina mentioned, and being bold and, and willing to set the tone around that. We're in this new era of you know moving to value-based care, and now we're conscientious of health equity, and we're trying to right the wrongs of the past. And there's this need to develop that trust with the patients that you serve. And, you know, the point was made earlier, you can't choose your patients that you serve. And, and oftentimes you don't have the same life experience. And we have to be thinking about how do we provide care in a more culturally competent way that's going to really advance the aims of value-based care. And, you know, that's where universities come in, like Western Governors University, where they're thinking about, you know, how do we eliminate implicit bias in teaching and learning? That's often the root cause of disparities in educational programs. And how do we control for a lot of these micro inequities that are often subtle, often unconscious, that sometimes sends an unintentional message to a student that may devalue or discourage or impede their academic performance. And, you know, there's just implicit bias and these micro inequities everywhere you look and uh, often in health professions programs. And, you know, now academia is really focused on righting the wrongs of, of, of that past and really trying to think about, you know, how to recalibrate these programs. So, Joy, I wanted to ask you, as I guess the primary respondee to, to this question, you know, how can health professions programs better address the needs for diversity in the workforce by really eliminating some of the disparities in educational programs to provide a more robust pipeline of health professionals that can really help health organizations like the ones that you all lead provide more uh, enhanced culturally competent care by having more diversity and inclusion in their workforce? Well, to be really frank, one structural thing we need is scholarships. The ONC put out a great grant, the Public Health Information Technology Grant, and they were $10 million grants. You weren't allowed to include scholarships in that. And I thought that was really a sad situation there because that's really, I know, a barrier for a lot of people to access. And then what structures they need once they're in an organization where they're a minority, that is not easy to be a part of that. And what journeys and supports do you have in, in that experience? But uh, I actually really like the work of Peter Kahn. He's a, a researcher and he has um, talks about how interprofessionalism and teamwork can really help challenge some of the structural nuances of racism. But he also has this great thing, and I know this is really practical, but he has his seven dirty words that disrupt uh, collaboration is based on George Carlin's seven dirty words, which if you're too young, don't Google that around anyone. <laughs> Do that on your own time. But uh, I love doing this as an activity to have people bring up what are the words that trigger me to feel defensive or, and you know, one just for me is I, I don't provide patient care anymore. And I get really offended when people are like, oh, you're a former this, you're a non-traditional. And I'm like, no, we're innovators. We're taking the profession and doing this in a different way. I actually talked to one of my former students today and she just quit a job and she's like, I just, I wanna be innovative. I need to go in this space, but I don't feel supported. And so, you know, talking about that. And so we go through this activity and I've done this from, with students all the way up to current clinicians to have a conversation around what are your triggers? What are the words or the actions that and, and people have no idea to like what you said, Eric, they're doing things that really have no, no intention to be hot button. Um, and they really destroy the trust that was discussed. So for a lot of nurse practitioners and PAs, being called a mid-level is like just a really offensive term, right? So, and I'll hear people be like, I had no idea. I'll never say that word again, right? So then we get in these conversations about being more thoughtful in our language, how we address each other. 
I mean, we got into a really robust conversation at our clinic team about who got to be called doctor because I have a clinical doctorate. So do the physicians, you know, I can't even tell you how many times I worked side by side with a cardiologist that people were offended that I called him Mike and not Dr. White, but he never called me doctor at all. He always called me joy and no one ever questioned any of that, you know, so those are really simple things, but I and really practical, but I found that to just be really great to use uh, Dr. Khan's work to really start those conversations. And I'm surprised how many people have never, they've carried around this baggage and they've never even gone to the person and said, hey, when you say that, it really bothers me, which is actually not a really hard conversation. And usually the person's like, oh, I didn't know I won't say that anymore. So I, I think we can do it in a lot less complex ways than we realize, but it, people are afraid of those conversations. And then I think the other thing is we tend to think of conflict in this really negative way. As health professions, we are naturally in conflict with each other. My goals for my patient may be very counteracting with the pharmacist, for example. So how do I come together with them and say, what is it the patient wants and how are we working together? But I was trained, I just come up with my own intervention and I communicated to the team, but we don't necessarily do that together. So really rethinking how we deliver care as a team, I think is, is another way we can do that. But we have not trained health professions outside of silos. We still don't. It's interprofessional education is still very new in the accreditation requirements where we even introduce the concepts of, I never met any other health professions so I was in my clinical training. I mean, these yeah. people that I'm supposed to work side by side with, I don't even know what they do. So I think those are some ideas just off the top of my head. Eric, I would add to this that one of the things that we have to think through as I'm, you know, as a corporation who's try, who's attempting to move the disparity needle or improve equity, right? Which is a value-based performance metric. So table stakes is having cultural competency in my in my uh, workforce, and I've got to be I got to be thoughtful with a low unemployment rate about how do I how do I get a future workforce in queue, right? Because I people are moving away to higher levels of salary and, and job opportunities. So the thought process that we put in place, we created a student health advocate program who basically procures the future workforce out of a university that is extraordinarily diverse with a local state university rather than some of the private universities you can get star-studded students that basically are uber prepared because they've had all this advantage their whole life, as opposed to students who have had to work really, really diligently to get to the advantage that they currently have in the state university. So creating a program within, the, within our company and bringing in our student health advocates and they work with our team in the space reporting health performance, our data, you know, in the performance of how we're doing in our quality. And then, of course, the next level will be then to do what Christina was talking about, which is really parsing the data and creating a, a health disparity report or health equity report, and, and then have targets that you move on. But the students actually see that actually happening in organizations that see that as an aspirational body of work because it has a pro-business strategy. So it's no longer that they have to go into the nonprofit world in order to and sacrifice to make a difference in the in the world. They could actually do it as as a very pro market idea, and not apologize about that. But we we have to create internships for the undergraduates, and then jobs for the graduates, and then of course the graduate students. And and I think it starts with being extraordinarily creative for students, for the sake of students, and that's our workforce in the future. I, I just think that the corporations need to do that. And, and that, that's one way that to address some of this. It may not get at the implicit bias, but you could almost say it does, right? Because if I'm really looking for talent for my next worker, I might be biased toward a different university because you don't want all this work. You wanna go faster. So anyway, I think we we're starting to invert the pyramid, if you will, and start to realize that the the value is in a different workforce, and they're everywhere. We just have to go look for them. They're everywhere. 
Eric, one of the reasons why I was so excited about being on this panel was that I, I look at Western Governors University and the things that, that are being produced, it's coming out of the mindset of your institution. And the idea of having this kind of uh, panel to discuss this topic, where else did I find that happening? I mean, to me, this is uncommon. I won't say rare, but it's uncommon. So the excitement is here is an institution that sees and understands what's going on and decided to make a conscious decision at the highest level that this is what we're going to do. And we're going to take it from the halls of academia and we're going to put it out there in the real world. Now, what that means to me is that the things that we are talking about is a composite of the kinds of things that will change the narrative about inequity and disparity. Uh, we use those words interchangeably, but they're not the same. Inequity is not having the tools or the capability to get what you need so that you can have the kinds of good outcomes that you expect. Disparity is the bad outcomes based upon a population. Now, with that said, one of the things that I find very distressing, and I would say that probably other people that look like me might uh, find uh, that I'm coming from left field, is the fact that there are a number of uh, studies that have demonstrated that if a provider looks more like the patient, then the outcome is more likely to be positive. I mean, really, is that what it comes down to, that you got to look like me in order for me to get the best that there is available? What it says and what that's speaking to is that the, the fact that the healthcare industry has failed to realize what it needs to do in order to change the way we see our patients or the patients see us. It's not about the fact that you look like me. It's about the fact that you have the training that understands where I came from. The training that says, this is what I need to do for a particular population whose experiences, whose history, whose economics are different than maybe where I was trained. And the schools have to open up just as Dr. Walton said, and Christina mentioned as well, and Joy, it's looking at the entire dynamics of an industry that has looked the other way for over 400 years, and they are still not there. They're still not there because we can talk about implicit bias and say, yes, that's a real thing, but what did you do about it? Did you train the nurses on implicit bias and what it really means in the clinic or when you're taking care of patients? Did you train the docs? Did you train the nurse practitioners so that we don't have this disparity uh, in terms of the way we see professions and the professions look at me? They look at me as a brown or black person, but with no other connection as to what that means in terms of how you deliver services. That's, that's so fantastic, Dr. Walker. Thank you for sharing that. I would also add in thinking about, you know, how we begin to have a mindset of upstreaming, you know, and that gets talked a lot about in terms of social determinants of health. But I think there's also a way to think about workforce in an upstreaming manner. A couple of examples, you know, one would be for building off of, of Dr. Walker and others for people who are pursuing health careers, um, MDs, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, et cetera, to build in sort of an understanding of how white supremacy has created social determinants of health and health inequity as core curriculum. So reading Kendi, reading Coates, reading my gr grandmother's hand, understanding 
you know, intergenerational trauma, how white trauma impacts uh, racism, how, how black trauma shows up intergenerationally, all these things that I think are so fundamentally important for people who are white pursuing, and, and, and people of color, but particularly for people who are white in pursuing health careers. And then additionally, thinking about how do we create more pipeline opportunities for the BIPOC community in higher ed opportunities? Joy earlier talked about removing financial barriers, which is absolutely critical path, you know, and something that's, you know, a little bit puzzling that this country has not, or maybe it's not puzzling that this country has not made more progress on completely removing those financial barriers uh, for people of color. And then additionally, sort of not waiting for those individuals to show up at institutions of higher ed, but start upstreaming that so that we get into lower school, we get into high school and identify uh, people of color, young people of color who would be interested in these opportunities for their career, particularly if these opportunities did not come with a financial burden. Because of course, we put people of color in a cycle, right, where we disadvantage them so that the average net worth is something like $8 and then have them show up at a medical school where it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. So that, of, of course, is something that a cycle that needs to be broken. Well, I wanted to build upon what you're saying there, uh, Christina, and this will be the last question we have for the panel today, but I think this will tie everything together. You know, we talked about how we're building this new value economy in healthcare, and now at this point, and obviously it's late in the game, but we're really focusing on all of these health inequities and we're standing up team-based care models and leveraging technology. But I also want to think about the education sector. I mean, we have seemingly in the last 50 years, you know, if you look at two uh, of the most dysfunctional, least productive industries in America. I mean, that's going to have to be healthcare and higher ed. And, you know, you see the same symptoms between the two in terms of, you know, runaway inflation. You have the cabal of entrenched institutions that are reluctant to change, you know, the lack of focus on the real consumer. You know, you have the protection of castes. And in higher education, it seems like the common model is that, you know, we're focused on, on a centuries old paradigm where you have to confer a degree as the end of formalized learning. And it's based on time, you know, you sitting in a classroom learning, it might not necessarily be competency based where you're ready to go upon graduation into the workforce and have the skills needed to actually do the job. And I know employers uh, uh, are seeing those, uh, those gaps in understanding and competency. So it seems like education really has to find a way, especially for earner learners. I mean, those already out in the workforce that are looking to upskill, there has to be contemporized curriculum. You know, maybe there it's not necessarily embedded in a degree program, but it's a progressive learning experience that follows a, a, a careerist throughout their, their lifelong learning journey. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to land on this idea of like, how can higher education better serve the healthcare industry by providing those skills and competencies for health professionals. And, you know, and that might be access to, uh, to education and equity and access and learning through uh, more affordable solutions. It could be through maybe these micro credential opportunities where you could upskill and have a, a, an on ramp into, you know, further learning. But I wanted to just pose that question as we wrap up today, you know, where do you see higher education going if it's truly going to meet healthcare where we're going in this uh, race to value? One of the things that we've done from the perspective of our company, and I'll get to your question directly about education, from, but from the perspective of our company, one of the things I, I realized early from my own uh, experience and training and personal uh, experience with, within the family is that I just can't learn it all. I mean, no matter how much I might try, I just can't learn it all. So one of the things that I recognize is that if you talk about a patient population, especially the most vulnerable patient population that we take care of, the 5% who are seniors with multiple chronicities and so on, there are those patients who need to have someone in attendance to take care of them, feed them, wash them, and so on and so forth. 
they have almost no connection to the person with the higher degree. If they write a note uh, regarding the care of the patient, does the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the nurse, do we read those notes? Yet and still, they are the, the boots on the ground with that person. And so one of the things I think that we're missing on a higher education level, and it's been mentioned several times with, uh, with all the other panelists, is how we're missing the integration of the various levels of healthcare all the way down to a CNA, if you will. The CNA is as important to the care of that person as I might be as the CEO or founder of my own company. Because who's taking care of that individual who's at home and that can't get to the supermarket or can't feed themselves? And when they write a note, do I have enough respect for them as a healthcare provider to read the note about that person? Most of the, most of the time that answer is going to be no. So what we do in the education of uh, professionals, regardless of what level, is we have this tendency to carve out only those who have the highest degrees and give them the most significance, the most important. That's not the way it works. And then on the other side, you, as I said previously, the educational model has to understand whom do you serve? And as Dr. Walton said, it's all about the dollar. Yeah, one of the things I think a lot about is the gap between academic requirements and what industry really needs. So I, we have 22 students doing experiences with us right now, and they're all over the board as far as degree programs. And one of the challenges we have is their accreditation is so structured that I have to have a pharmacy student with a pharmacist to ensure I can meet the academic requirements. Now, is that really best for the pharmacy student to spend their whole time? Now they, they can break off, but essentially their supervisor or preceptor has to be a pharmacist. They have to spend a certain amount of time. We've got nurses, health informatists, health technologists, all these amazing minds here that the student may casually interact with. But why can't they be supervised by someone outside of their profession? The other thing is we have time constraints around training that don't allow people to overlap and train together. So, we, and these are all by accreditation bodies that are not allowing flexibility for people to be innovative and do, I have a million ideas, but a lot of times to do those ideas would not allow the student to meet or the institution to meet the academic requirements. And as much as I appreciate that we need guidelines and structure, that stifles innovation. So how do we balance that? And I have a hard time sometimes making a case of hosting certain students here because their requirements are so rigid that I can't make a business case for their benefit here versus others that have more flexibility that can do data projects that support our company. I can much more easily make a case to rationalize and we don't pay any of the students. They all do it for academic credit. So as I forge partnerships, I'm having to sometimes be really creative or say no to certain learners because their requirements are so stringent that there's not a, a benefit use case I can make to our organization. So I'd love to see more flexibility in, in those. And I know that's tackling like a lot of structural issues, but I see it. There's just a disconnect between what accreditors are telling programs and what really the industry needs. And they don't allow us to be flexible. My husband is a family doctor. He works at a fairly qualified health center. And I, I like to question him over dinner on occasion. I think it may make him a little bit crazy, but I will say, so how many patients did you see this afternoon? And he'll usually say something like, you know, 14, 15, 16. And then I'll say to him, how many of those patients needed MD level of care? He'll say, mm, maybe one or two. So I think, and, you know, one of the panelists made this, this point earlier that we built healthcare professionals against where the money is. Right. And so I think that if we're going to control and, and then there's this whole like, P, oh, we're not going to have enough PCPs in the future. It's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we put a bunch of work on MDs that doesn't need MD level of care and we create a lot of moral injury by the way that, you know, what we've done to primary care medicine. Yes, we will create a problem. 
it's really important to think about how we start to break this cycle and what are some of the roles that we can invest in. One of the roles that we've been tinkering with at C3 is telehealth navigators. So these are people who are like community health workers. They are, they are subspecialized, so they understand technology and they can go into a patient's home and help that patient get ready to be enabled with tech, including when necessary, remote patient monitoring so that that's not another thing that is put on the back of a primary care provider at the time of the visit. And of course, so that more individuals are able to access telehealth, both via audio modalities and via uh, video modalities. I think other roles that are really sort of undervalued where higher ed needs to provide more support and more course development is also individuals in the behavioral health community and in the recovery model, such as peer specialists and recovery coaches who can provide highly effective peer supports to individuals who are recovering from a substance use disorder and or a mental health condition. So I think that continued, and I think that this is very, very aligned with value-based care, very aligned with primary care capitation, right? Because that changes the financial equation where you can get alignment inside of a provider organization that yes, the business case is now right for using a different complement of individuals on a care team because just using licensed clinicians is no longer a critical path to the reimbursement methodology. The only thing I would add or contribute to this, Eric, is this idea. Um, I, I have the good fortune of teaching at a university that has a healthcare management undergraduate degree program, which I think is very innovative, basically attracting an, an enormous diversity of students. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the kind of the rigidity, I think Joy's bringing that up, right? The, the rigidity of the uh, credentialing requirements for the university. And we've always done it this way, you know, saying you know, academics have kind of done things a certain way. The, the, I think for a, a word of hope, right, is that we're at the very beginning of a conversation nationally. The CMS has kind of drove a stake in the ground around equity, which I think can actually be the seeds, the catalyst, the water for the seeds of transforming the way we prepare people that are going to be in the field, the team, right? And as Christina was talking about, reshuffling the deck, if you will, so that the delivery system is actually changed. So we're not necessarily misusing our, our resources in the way that we always have in the past, right? And then in so doing, really addressing some of the moral injury or the burnout that we see in the care delivery system. One of the thoughts I was having, we talked about this last night when I was teaching, was this idea of having a value-based healthcare class simulator, right? Where you'd literally task the future generation with building the company and, and using your company as a model, right? So I have a company that I can say, here's what we do, but don't do it this way, you know, or find the holes in this problem, you know, in what we're doing, you know, redesign the care delivery model with the assumption that capitation is going to be the financing model, right? So we need a delivery model that kind of matches, like you said, the innovation around the, the financing model. And because there's so much more technology, there's, and these young people are so brilliant, right? That, that they can certainly run circles around uh, some of us older folks at this point. So I, I, I have this tremendous hope uh, that people who have lived experiences can share with us in this open simulator education model that I think you're starting at WGU, but are also maybe sprinkled in other places. And maybe there's a consortium of universities that could come together like WGU that could actually uh, learn together on how to be innovators in, in re-educating um, or you know, retooling the education program. Um, so that, I'd offer that to you, Eric, as, a, as an opportunity to take away from this conversation. Well, Jim, I can't think of a better way to end the conversation, you know, just such hope and building the workforce for the future of value-based care. And, and it does begin with trust and finding ways to, to catalyze this important movement. And so I'm really excited about this convergence of 
higher education and industry to really bring about the the future that we seek. Uh, Jim, Joy, Christina, Richard, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, wonderful discussion today. Thank <laughs> you.